Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We all know about Philby, McLean, Burgess, and Blunt. But there's one Soviet spy as important as any of them who very few of us have even heard of. There she was with her three children. She baked extremely good scones. As far as anyone was concerned, she was a perfectly ordinary citizen. In the privy in the back garden, she installed a powerful radio transmitter with which she was communicating with Moscow. The last thing that MI5 wanted to believe was that they had an active spy in the Cotswolds. To her family, she was Ursula Kuczynski. To her neighbours, Mrs Burton. And to the Soviet intelligence services, Agent Sonia, colonel in the Red Army. And her story is one of the most fascinating of all. We tend to look at history increasingly these days as a kind of monochrome moral accounting. Good, bad, boo, hurrah, you know, these people were good, these people were bad. And, and actually history is much more complicated and much more interesting than that. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Red Sonia, the Cotswold super spy. I'm Ben McIntyre. I am associate editor and a columnist on The Times. But at the same time, I write books about espionage. Ben McIntyre has written for The Times for 25 years, reporting from New York, Paris and Washington. But before journalism, a far more discreet profession beckoned. I was tapped up, as the phrase goes, by MI6 before I left university. One of my tutors took me aside very last day of term and said, there are parts of the Foreign Office that are slightly different from other parts of the Foreign Office. Uh, in the sense that they're not the same as the Foreign Office. But on the other hand, they're within the Foreign And I knew exactly what he was talking about, uh, although he never actually said. And he sent me off to an address in Whitehall where I met a man alarmingly dressed in a rather smart suit, but wearing sandals with socks. That wasn't a good start for me at all. And um, <laughs> he grumbled me pretty quickly. He realised that, as I've demonstrated this very moment, I'm not very good at keeping secrets. Ben might not have become a spy, as far as we know, but he has got to know a few of them, either in the flesh or in the archives. He's just written his eighth book of true tales of espionage, Agent Sonia, Lover, Mother, Soldier, Spy. It's one of those areas of, of writing where the subject matter is that usually cornered by novelists. Loyalty, love, betrayal, 
adventure, romance, the things that happen in Spy World are so outlandish and so unlikely that one is left thinking, my God, actually, truth really is stranger than fiction. And I would argue a bit more interesting. And also, I suppose there's something incredibly attractive about a world of people who never, ever talk about what they do to people like us who are actually fabulously indiscreet. <laughs> well, actually, uh, I slightly challenge that after all this time doing it. I mean, I find spies themselves are pretty indiscreet once they've retired. They, they love talking about their, their pasts. And actually, they turn into tremendously good sources after a while because imagination is an absolutely central part of all espionage. What you're doing uh, in human intelligence is creating a parallel fictional world and trying to lure people into it. So, in fact, they, they really do actually rather love telling their stories. But I think the thing that really is a kind of general human fantasy in a way is to be able to live a double or a triple life, to imagine that you might seem to be something on the outside while being something completely different on the inside. And that is uh, that is true, I think, universally of all spies. Uh, and it is also something that we, in some strange way, crave uh, as human beings, the idea that maybe the perhaps rather humdrum life that we live may disguise something very different. Today, Ben's telling me the story of one of the most extraordinary double lives in British history, one that shaped the course of the Cold War. It's a tale that even intersects with that of my own family. My father Sam and mother Lavender were members of the Communist Party of Great Britain and came into contact with some of the characters we're going to hear about. And on top of that, and this bit really surprised me, there's a further twist involving another of our colleagues at the Times. More on that later. Let's begin in Birmingham in 1941. If you had been at the Snow Hill railway station and you'd been looking at the cafe opposite it on an October evening in 1941, you'd have seen a man and a woman deep in conversation in German, two refugees, and you probably wouldn't have made any impression on you at all. But at the end of the conversation... The man stood up and handed a file of papers to the woman who put it in her shopping bag. She got on a train and then cycled back to her home in rural Oxfordshire. That was actually the beginning of one of the most astonishing spy halls in history. When you met the woman, I mean, her real name was Ursula Kaczynski. The name when she met the man was Mrs Burton, Mrs Ursula Burton. And he was Klaus Fuchs. He was a German-Jewish communist working in the British Atomic Bomb Project. And he had just passed to Ursula the beginnings of a vast trove of intelligence. Because so far from being the ordinary housewife Mrs. Burton, Ursula Kaczynski was in fact Colonel Kaczynski of the Red Army Intelligence Service. Not only one of the most experienced spies in that service, but the most important illegal spy in Britain during the war. And what was the impact of the material that Fuchs gave to Ursula Burton or Sonia? Well, it started slowly. I mean, it started with evidence about what he was specifically working on in what was known as the Tube Alloys Project. That was the code name for the atomic weapons program that Churchill had authorised, highly secret. Now, now Fuchs was a, a prodigiously talented physicist. He was also a committed communist who'd fallen foul of the Nazis, taken refuge in Britain, where he was warmly welcomed, as many refugee Jewish 
German scientists were. And he'd been taken on to the, the top secret tube alloys project. But he felt that since Britain and the Soviet Union were allies in the war against Hitler, that the fact that Britain and America were secretly building this super weapon without telling the Soviets was quite simply unfair. And he wanted to balance up the side. He, he didn't feel that it was right that America and Britain should be the only powers with the bomb. And so he believed he was working out of pure motives, as almost all spies do. And if we were to measure him against spies of the 20th century and their impact on history, where would we place him? Fuchs was absolutely central. He wasn't the only one, but he was by some way the most important of the spies that the Soviet Union had planted, first of all inside tube alloys and then latterly inside the Manhattan Project in America, where Fuchs was transferred uh, in the second part of his, his wartime career. So, so Fuchs is right up there. Would they have got the bomb without him? Possibly, probably, eventually. Would they have got it so fast? Almost certainly not. One of Fuchs's requirements, one of the things that he, he insisted on when he signed up with the Soviets, was that he he, he wanted his, his intelligence to go straight to Stalin's desk. And that is what was happening to it. And by after a year or so, they were actually working to a shopping list provided by Stalin. I mean, it was that direct link straight into the top of the Soviet hierarchy. So here you have this most important atomic scientist giving the deepest secrets of the Allied atomic bomb project directly to a Russian spy who's going to give it to Stalin, and that Russian spy is this woman, Sonia. That's right. That's right. Codenamed Sonia had been so codenamed by this point for about 10 years. And she'd worked her... I mean, the extraordinary thing about Sonia really is that while there are many sp women spies in history... Actually, Ursula is different in kind because she was a highly trained intelligence officer. She'd gone through the process. She knew exactly what she was doing. She was technically brilliant. And for her, it was a vocation. Now, those are, they're not just rare in this world in the, in the middle of the last century in, in the espionage world. She's almost unique. In fact, I don't know of a single other woman spy who rose so high within the structure. She wasn't an agent pure and simple. She wasn't just an informant. She was an officer. So she was a pro. One of the things that Ursula worked out very early in her career was that she had a perfect disguise, which was her gender. She was almost invisible in a world of espionage. It's one of the reasons why she managed to outwit and outrun not only the enemy security services that were after her, but also the murderers within the Stalinist regime. She she was sort of just completely came under the radar. And that is largely why her story has never been fully told before. In a way, she's using other people's assumptions about gender against them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. She worked in a very sexist, very chauvinist world where women were there to make the tea and have babies. And she herself said children are an extremely useful espionage disguise. The more children I have, the less visible I am going to be. And she was absolutely right. Tell us about her early life, Ben. How did she come to be a spy? Well, Ursula was born just before the First World War in Berlin to a German-Jewish family, a very well-to-do family of intellectuals and academics. But she grew up in the sort of intense ideological ferment of that chaotic period between the wars in Germany when the extreme right was on the rise, and so was the extreme left. 
you know, there was, a, we often forget it now, but, but we sort of imagine that somehow the rise of fascism was inevitable in Germany. Well, it wasn't. And there were many people who looked at what was happening in Germany and believed that the only way to oppose Hitler and his Nazi thugs was communism. And as a 16-year-old girl, she went on a march, on the May Day Parade march with the Communist Youth League in Berlin. She was beaten up, I mean, quite badly, but by a police, she was hit by a policeman's truncheon. And in a way, that was the turning point. That moment was when she decided, right, I am, I, and she, she became a communist, utterly committed, and remained a communist for the rest of her life. But she had no plans, obviously, as a young woman to become a spy. It was accidental. Her husband got a job in Shanghai. An extraordinary woman called Agnes Smedley, who was an American novelist, had an extraordinary life herself, but was also, she, Agnes Smedley, was a communist spy. She met up with Ursula, and Ursula adored her. The two of them became close, close friends. But after their very first meeting in the Café Hotel, Agnes contacted Moscow headquarters and asked for permission to recruit Ursula into the intelligence world. And that began Ursula's formal induction into the spy world. So she's in Shanghai, and then what does she do? Well, she's trained in radio technology. She was then deployed to Poland on the eve of the Nazi invasion, where she ran underground networks. And then by 1939, she's in Switzerland, running the most important of the anti-Nazi networks inside the Reich. I mean, she was running spies against Nazi Germany across the border from Switzerland. Unbelievably dangerous. And actually, at this point was when she hatched a plot that's really not been known at all, which was that two of her agents, two Englishmen, two communists called Alexander Foote and Len Burton, had taken to dining in Munich in Hitler's favourite restaurant. And they spotted that here was an assassination opportunity, that if they could plant a bomb next to the very narrow partition uh, that divided Hitler's sort of semi-private dining room from the rest of the restaurant, they could blow him to smithereens. Ursula picked up on this. She got authorization from Moscow, and they were weeks away from putting it into operation when the notorious pact between Stalin and Hitler, the non-aggression pact, called it off. And she got a wireless message in her sort of mountaintop home saying, cease all offensive operations. And it was called off, but it came very, very close to, to being put into operation and would obviously utterly have changed the course of history. So this spy, Ursula Stroke Sonia, came very close to killing Hitler and was stopped almost at the last minute by the Soviet Nazi pact. Yeah, that's exactly right. And she was appalled by that. I mean, she she was someone who had dedicated her life to fighting fascism. You know, her family was being steadily wiped out in Germany. Many of them were refugees. This was the cause that she dedicated herself to. And suddenly, the Soviet Union that she believed so much in was now in alliance with the regime that she detested. And it was real, it was one of the many crises of conscience for Ursula over a very long period. And she kind of, the, the network went briefly for as long as the pact lasted into abeyance. So the war begins. And of course, for communists, there are two beginnings to the war. There's the one in 1939, when Britain and Germany go to war. Uh, and then there's the one in 1941, when Germany invades Russia. What is she doing? Well, Ursula has a problem in Switzerland, which is that her German passport is about to expire. 
And she knew that when it did expire, she was quite likely to be deported back to Germany and that, you know, that would be curtains. She'd be finished. So she needed to to have a way of getting out of Switzerland. So she married one of her agents. She married a man called Len Burton, who had fought in the Spanish Civil War, was a committed communist, knew and obviously knew about her network. And one of the more touching elements of this story was that they married for convenience, or at least she thought it was convenience, Len didn't, and they remained Mm -hmm. married for the rest of their lives. But by marrying him, she obtained a British passport, and that gave her a way to get out. She got to Britain, linked up with her German-Jewish family, who were already refugees here, and then set up shop again. The minute that Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, she was back in the game. She built a wireless transmitter, and began to spy again. I mean, Britain and the Soviet Union were allies, of course, but that didn't stop anybody from spying on everybody else. She was spying on the British for the Russians and given the task of doing that by the Russians. Yes. Even before the atomic bomb program became apparent, she was already gathering really useful information about what was happening in British government circles, about military technology, about troop movements. This was all stuff that Moscow, even though it was allied to Britain, was very keen to know. And don't let's forget, of course, that the Soviets had other spies within the British establishment. They had Kim Philby in MI6, They had Donald McLean in the Foreign Office. They had John Cairncross. They had Anthony Blunt in MI5. The Soviets did not stop spying on Britain just because there was an alliance. So take me through what her daily routine is. Where is she living? What's she doing? What does she appear to be? And what is she actually doing? Well, she settled outside Oxford, as you know, because she didn't want to live in London because of the Blitz, understandably, and that was also where her family was based. So she moved to the tiny Cotswolds village of Great Rollwright, and to all intents and purposes, she was Mrs. Burton. There she was with her three children. She baked extremely good scones, still remembered in Great Rollwright. She joined in neighbours' life. She lived a perfectly ordinary refugee life. And in fact, many of her neighbours didn't even really realise she was a refugee. She spoke very, very good English with only the faintest accent. So as far as anyone was concerned, she was a perfectly ordinary citizen. In fact, she was Colonel Ursula Kaczynski. She'd risen up through the ranks. And in the privy in the back garden uh, of the house in Great Rollwright, she installed a powerful radio transmitter with which she was communicating with Moscow. That was not the only way she did it. She had a Soviet handler who was operating from out of the Soviet embassy, and they would meet regularly at a spy rendezvous in London. And if she had information that was too bulky to send by transmitter, she would either leave it in a hollow tree not far from Great Rollwright, or she would meet him at a kind of spy rendezvous just outside Oxford. And in the course of three... Ben, Ben, Hmm. sorry, Ben, are you serious? A hollow tree? Yeah, the dead drop site, okay, was three trees on from the crossroads beyond the railway crossing outside Great Rollwright. So she would hop on her bicycle with her spy stash, go to the hollow tree and stick it in the hollow tree, and then sometime later, the Soviet officer Aptekar would go and pick it up and leave money and information and instructions for her. There is quite a funny element to this. They changed the rendezvous site at one point to a different hollow tree. But the message never got through. And for about a year, Ursula was leaving messages in the wrong hollow tree. And the Soviets were leaving money in a different hollow tree. 
vast intelligence gathering operation simply had got the wrong tree. So for quite a long period, I thought she'd been cast out into the cold. It was just one of those cock-ups that frequently happen in espionage. But, I mean, the stuff from Fuchs was absolutely gold dust. Over the course of these three years, it's calculated, and we have the Soviet printout on what they were getting, 570 pages of top-secret scientific information. Really, in effect, the blueprint, as far as it had got at that point, for 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 building the atomic bomb. And he was not her only source. She had various other spies who were producing military information as well. So it wasn't just Fuchs. He was much the most important. But she was running a whole network of these people and running them with extraordinary efficiency. So there she is in Oxford and in Great Rollwright, the small village, and she's leaving things in trees and people are coming to pick them up and so on. But she's also been in Shanghai. She's also been in Switzerland and so on. Do... Are spooks suspect her? They do. And in fact, MI5 was watching the Kaczynski clan from the moment they arrived. This was a group of known communists. They were watching them very closely. And Ursula herself was tracked right from the moment that she arrived. But but to return to what you mentioned at the beginning, they were always much more interested in Len Burton, her husband, than they were in Ursula, because he was a known communist. And of course, he was a man. So from their point of view... That was the most important element. But there is an exception. It would have probably taken a woman to spot what Ursula was really up to. And there was only one woman in the communist anti-Soviet section of MI5. And she uniquely was the one who really suspected Ursula. She went by the unimprovable name of Millicent Baggett. And she was a formidable, very tough expert on communist subversion. And she very early on spotted there was something strange about Ursula Kaczynski, and she was constantly urging her male colleagues to do something. But it's extraordinary. When you go through the MI files, time after time, Millicent Baggett's suggestion that you know they needed to get onto Ursula were kind of turned down. And there is a kind of conspiracy element to this, and this is sort of your, your kind of territory, David, because... There's a long-running theory that Roger Hollis, who was head of the Soviet section, F section, who went on to become director general of MI5, there's a long-running conspiracy theory that he himself was a Soviet spy who had been in Shanghai at the same time as Ursula in the late 1920s. Now, I've been very, very carefully through the files, and it seems to me there are really only two interpretations of Hollis's behavior. He undoubtedly, at every turn, didn't bother to follow up. All the leads just died on the vine. Now, either he was a traitor or he was spectacularly incompetent. And I err towards the second interpretation because in order to cover his tracks over 20 years, he would have had to be a a spy of rare brilliance and nobody accused Roger Hollis of being that. (laughs) I mean, he he was a plodding, slightly droopy bureaucrat. And there's a great quote from him, which I think almost sums him up perfectly, and the attitude of MI5, in which he says, there is nothing to worry about, Mrs. Mrs. Burton, because she is much preoccupied with her children and domestic affairs. And and presumably, some of that might have been based on what her neighbours were saying. There are local police reports from Chipping Norton Police Station, where they do go around and they ask the neighbours. I mean, there's only one moment when you think, good grief, could they really have missed this? When a a, a sort of semi-observant policeman noticed above her cottage that there was an aerial, there was a massively sized 
aerial, a much bigger than a normal aerial. And he he writes in the in the report that goes straight to Hollis. He says, "You may think this worthy of further investigation, but Hollis didn't." So, what did Millicent Baggett spot that no one else does? And uh, is it possibly just that Millicent Baggett doesn't underestimate women in the way that the men do? I think it's exactly that. I'm afraid I think it is as simple as that. Now, the listener doesn't know this, but you do. My family knew her sister, Bridget. So for that reason, I was rootling through a different part of the files. And one of the things that I thought when I was looking at the accounts of their interviews with Ursula was that, firstly, they thought that she probably had turned against the Soviet Union because of the Nazi-Soviet pact, and they quite liked that idea. And second, that they didn't really see a point in making a big fuss about it all. (laughs) Well, this is exactly right. It's an old truism of intelligence that what you try to do if you're going to deceive somebody is to tell them what they already want to believe. And the last thing that MI5 wanted to believe was that they had an active spy in the Cotswolds. MI5 didn't put two and two together, but they did send uh, someone to interview Ursula. They didn't send Millicent Baggett, which is exactly who they should have sent. Instead, they sent a man called Jim Scarden, who had an extraordinary reputation as the great grand inquisitor of MI5, a reputation, it has to be said, that was almost completely undeserved. Jim Scarden was hopeless. I mean, he was absolutely useless. He turned up with a colleague to talk to Ursula and emerged from her sitting room saying, well, she's a very tough nut. I'm pretty sure she didn't do any spying after 1942, and we can just leave the case there. And then Fuchs is rumbled. Fuchs is rumbled. Fuchs is eventually arrested. He made a number of uh, a series of sort of mistakes that and the net closed around him and he finally confessed and Ursula realized that she had to get out that the net was closing very very quickly and she made her run for it so she made her run for it but she didn't do it did she in any kind of incredibly clandestine way she just took a train she did i mean she i think she realized that that a sudden rush would have drawn more attention than what appeared to be a leisurely kind of i'm going to go and see relatives in germany move but and by this point people in the village had begun to wonder what was going on at the first great roll right because there were police going in and out you know they'd started to put two and two together and she was being watched pretty closely and i think she knew that she really only had weeks and and not even weeks before it was going to close but of course she had to get permission to leave the country and her her real fear was that mi5 and and the home office you know the, the 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 sort of immigration authorities would put two and two together and stop her from leaving but they didn't And where did she go? She went to East Berlin, and that was where she spent the rest of her life. I mean, the extraordinary thing about Ursula is she she then completely reinvented herself as a children's novelist. She became Ruth Werner. She sold thousands of copies of her novels for children, and she was known, I mean, she became nicknamed the sort of Enid Blyton of East Germany. No one, until until many, many, many years later, had a clue that she'd actually been an extremely prominent and highly successful Soviet spy. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. I told you that there was another twist to the story very close to home. This amazing. I mean, just (laughs) extraordinary. So... Which is your mother? Well, my mother is Josie, who's the daughter of Bridget. Is your mother's Josie? Yes, you... No, I know, I know Josie. No. I, I mean, I used to know her. Yes, of course. Really? And we all knew Josie because she was so glamorous. <laughs> um, She'll love that. I'm going to tell her that. Rosa Ellis is a data journalist for The Times and The Sunday Times. And as it happens, Ursula was her great aunt. Rosa's grandmother was Ursula's sister Brigitta, or, as I knew her, Bridget. Bridget had married one of Britain's leading post-war communists, a railwayman called Jock Nicholson, and they lived in North London with their children. Growing up in the Communist Party of Great Britain, they were people I knew well. I don't know whether you know this, but your grandparents and my parents were very big friends. I didn't know that. But I didn't know she was Brigitta. I just thought she was Bridget. And Jock, they were very, very old friends and comrades of my of my parents. Wow. After excerpts from Ben's book were published in The Times and The Sunday Times, Rosa wrote about her own reflections on Ursula's and Brigitte's legacy. I've always known about what Ursula did, or, or some of it anyway, the broad story. We knew that she was a spy for the Russians. It was just like, oh yeah, you know... That aunt's a teacher, that aunt's a spy. It was just kind of something that we just had always known. I actually found out that Ben McIntyre was writing the book quite a while ago, maybe six months to a year ago, but I didn't tell him that I was related, which is maybe I should have reached out earlier, but I didn't. A few years ago, as I was looking into my own family's history, I searched the National Archives at Kew, the modern, spacious building in southwest London, that houses, among other things, those records that the security services have allowed to be declassified. There, I found dockets sent to the Postmaster General requiring 
all postal packets and telegrams addressed to Bridget Nicholson Nekuczynski to be detained, opened and produced for inspection and ordering all telephone conversations on telephone number Primrose 6217 to be recorded. The rest of the file was full of intercepts of everyday ordinariness. As I read this, I thought it was absurd, utterly pointless. Bridget may have been a communist, but as far as I knew, she was nothing more than an activist. She was as much a spy as my mother was, which was not at all. Well, I was wrong. I was a kid, but I knew your grandmother. And as I said, you know, she seemed just like the rest of us. And to discover very recently, say five years ago, when I also went back into the files, that she had this history. And then to discover about the history of the family. If you just look at life in a completely different way, you realise that the things that you were looking at were absolutely just the surface things. And you really kind of didn't know anything. And there's this incredibly rich and complicated and quite often rather dangerous world out there that you knew nothing about. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It just seems so far removed. I read in Ben's book that my granny recruited some of the spies that went on to work with Sonia and that they went to her house and she gave them tea and biscuits. So your granny recruited the man who nearly assassinated Hitler? Yeah. My granny, who used to give me biscuits and who I would go on holiday with to a caravan and she she recruited a man who nearly killed Hitler. <laughs> Tails round the caravan. This seems a daft question, but for me, actually, for various reasons, it's not so daft. Can you understand? Do you feel that you understand why she did what she did? Um, I think it's probably hard for me to imagine what it was like to be Jewish, you know, in Nazi Germany in your kind of formative years and how that would shape you. I think fighting against fascism, I hope I would have done the same thing I, in terms of understanding that side of the work, yeah. In terms of that loyalty to the Soviets for all those years, I don't know, probably not. But I think it's hard to put yourself in that position in history when it was so different to everything that I know. Rosa, thanks very much. And when we next get back in the office, let me buy you a, a coffee upstairs and um, you can tell me what's happened to the rest of the family and so on, because I'd love to know. Ben, what do you think of her? You've now studied her. What's your reaction to her as a person and to her career? Well, look, I, I took up this project with some qualms because I knew I was going to have to spend three years in the company of an extremely committed communist ideologue. And that I thought that might not be a huge amount of fun. I mean, because actually those sort of people don't tend to be tremendously good company. Actually, Ursula was really, she's an extraordinary woman. She was very funny. She was very ironic about her own situation. She had a sense of the absurd and a sense of her own theatre. And she was very honest. I mean, one of the extraordinary sources that I had for this book were all her writings, both published and unpublished. And, and many of her books are really disguised autobiography. She's changed a few of the names, but really what she writes about is memoir. And in that, she is extremely honest, really, about the doubts and the agony that assailed her, not just ideological ones when she came to realise what had happened, that, that in fact the Stalinist regime had been routinely murdering her friends and colleagues. 
Why was I left unscathed? I don't know. A matter of chance. I still believed that a better socialism could be achieved with more democracy instead of dictatorship. But also the struggle that she had to kind of reconcile what she saw as her ideological duty and her responsibilities as a mother and a wife and a, and a homemaker. A nightmare haunts my sleep. The enemy is at my heels and I have no time to destroy information. I ended up really liking Ursula. I didn't agree with her politics. I, I think, you know, she served a brutal, philistine, oppressive, tyrannical, murderous regime. She didn't know that for much of her time in, in harness, as it were, when she did realise she was absolutely distraught. She remained a communist, but she said it, she said she wrote at the time, I didn't do this for Stalin, I did this for the cause. And then when she watched communism collapse around her, she was very, very disillusioned. I mean, at the end of her life, she came to realise that, that the truths that she'd followed had been an enormous lie. And you get a picture of somebody who was, within the context of their times, moved along by vast kind of tides of history. And what I tried to do was to kind of give one an idea of communism. This isn't an apolo apology for communism or, or a particular communist at all, but she was human. And I think if we only look at history as a kind of monochrome moral accounting, you know, good people, bad people, hooray, boo, then we miss all the complexity of individuals making terribly difficult decisions in circumstances that are not of their making. I think that's really important and really worthwhile. And there is just one final point which you, you might want to deal with. Is it clear that it was entirely a bad thing that the Russians also got the bomb? Well, this is the this is the key question. I mean, Ursula and Fuchs looked back on, on what they'd done and they said, we have preserved world peace. By providing the Soviets with a bomb, we helped to create that fragile balance of power, the mutually assured era, era of destruction that we all, many of us remember, that, that actually kept the world safer. That was what they argued. They said it was about equaling up the score. And Look, I can't entirely argue with that. I mean, I look back and think, you know, if America had been the only country to have the bomb, and bear in mind there were people in America arguing very forcefully that when they had built the bomb, they should simply flatten the Soviet Union with it. That was a serious policy project for some. Would we want to live in a world in which only one power had had the atomic weapon and that weapon was America? I think with the benefit of hindsight, many people would say not. But it is definitely a debating point. I mean, it's, it's not clear to me. But again, I think it addresses that question of history doesn't throw up easy moral lessons. That's not what it's for. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Times Associate Editor and Columnist Ben McIntyre and Times Data Journalist Rosa Ellis. You can read more of their work with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe today to find out more. The producer was James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. See you soon. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.